Psalm 46, and there are 11 verses in Psalm 46, 12 counting the heading. So let's just read this together, and then um, we'll see what God has for us today from this passage of Scripture. The heading says, To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful this morning that we can be with your people, that we can worship you in spirit and truth, and, and that the worship is not perfunctory, but it's with warmth and great meaning. I pray that you'd help me today. It has occurred to me once more that sermons are like the little boy's lunch in John 6, they are totally inadequate and insufficient in and of themselves. But you, Lord, have the power to make them sufficient to meet the needs of your people and to bring glory to yourself. And I pray that you do that this morning for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
Well, the psalm before us, as is all of the psalms, I believe, is a song. I want you to notice the heading to the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamath. I like the way the King James puts this. It says, to the chief musician for the sons of Korah, a song upon Alamath, to the chief musician. This song was addressed to the most respected musician in Israel, the chief musician. He was the leader of the temple musicians. But it wasn't just to be sung by him. It was to be sung by the sons of Korah who were part of the Levitical priesthood who took a turn or took a course in the temple. And they evidently were singers. You know, I've been reading in the Old Testament in my devotions, and every once in a while I come across passages of Scripture that talk about these Levitical priesthood, these guys in the temple, that their entire job all day was to sing praises and play instruments in worship to God. I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I think that would be a fun job. And so that's what they did. And some commentators believe that it was written in a high key, which may be indicated by this term, Alamoth. But I want to ask this question. What is the theme of this song? What is the theme of this song? In other words, what truth is this psalm or song all about? And I've had it put into the bulletin, but I want to read it to you because... I want us to walk out of here with this truth ringing in our hearts. And here is the truth. This is what the psalmist is saying in this psalm. God is with us. He has manifested his powerful presence again and again by the defeating of our enemies. That's what the psalm is about. Can I read that one more time? God is with us. He has manifested his powerful presence again and again by the defeating of our enemies. Now, we don't know who the writer of this psalm is, nor do we know what the occasion of the psalm is. But you can tell by reading the psalm that evidently the writer has been rehearsing in his mind the history of Israel. How over and over and over and over, I think in some sense beginning in Egypt, over and over again, God has risen up. He has defeated the enemies of his people and in so doing showed them his manifested presence and declaring his glory to the whole earth. That's what this psalm is about. That's the theme of the psalm. And before we start walking through it together, there's one more thing I want you to notice. This psalm is divided into three parts, which all end with the word selah. Selah, which is a term for a musical rest and I think has other implications besides that that we'll get to in a moment. So we could say, I, 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 almost, want, I almost wanted to say this, this song has three verses, but then I thought 
the verse divisions might be a little confusing. So I think we can say this. This song has three stanzas. Three stanzas. I want to give them to you, and then we'll go back and unpack them. So stanza number one is, because God is with us, we need not fear. Verses one to three. Stanza two is, because God is with us, we can enjoy gladness and stability. Verses four through seven. And finally, because God is with us, we should behold his works and be still. Verses 8 through 11. So let's walk through this psalm together and unpack these things. So the first stanza is about this. Because God is with us, we need not fear. Verses 1 through 3. And in verse 1, the psalmist makes a bold, confident statement. Let's look at it again. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. You know, if you were part of the nation of Israel and you were contemplating the history of Israel, you would have to come to the conclusion that God is with your nation and that he is a very present help in trouble. The word refuge, of course, means shelter or protection. The word strength there means power. So what the psalmist is saying is this. God is our protector. He is our power. And he is very present to help us when we are facing trouble. I want you to notice that he says... God is our refuge and strength. Not our armies. Not our king. Not our government. Not our friends. Not our jobs. Not our bank accounts. Not our, and you can just make a whole list of things. That is not our refuge. But we tend to think sometimes that they are a refuge. We tend to think sometimes that our money is our power or our job or our position. So can you say with the psalmist this morning, God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What I'm asking is this. This morning as you sit here, where is your confidence? What is your assurance that everything is going to be all right in your life? What is the ground of your peace? Though we do not know what trouble we're going to face, we do know for sure that we are going to face trouble in the future. I was in a Zoom meeting with someone on one of my clients and a marketer on Friday, and the marketer came on and asked a funny question. 
He said, are you staying out of trouble? And I said, no. <laughs> I dare say that today there's somebody in this auditorium that right now is in some kind of trouble. Oh, I don't mean trouble with the law. I mean you're in some kind of trouble. You have some kind of situation that you can't solve on your own. And we know that we're going to face trouble in our lives. Job 14.1 says, man that is born of woman, of a woman. That, that pretty much takes all of us in, I think. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Trouble. Now we know that he's present because he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But I don't think that's what the psalmist had in mind. I don't think he was thinking about God's omnipresence. I think he was rather thinking about his manifested presence. He manifests his presence to his people by helping them in their times of trouble. Oh, I, I pray the Holy Spirit will let that sink in our souls. He manifests his presence to his people by helping them in their times of trouble. Folks, do you realize that trouble, trouble is an environment where God can manifest his glory to you, where God can declare his glory to you by working in such a way as to solve your trouble. He loves to do that. Now, if you're like I am, and I pray you're not, but I suspect you might be in this regard, I just don't want any trouble. I don't want any trouble. I don't want any problems. I want my life to be smooth and trouble-free. I don't want to get reports from the doctor that tell me I've got an aneurysm in my heart and I got this going on and I got that going on. I don't like that. I don't care for it. But you know what, folks? It's in trouble that God, one way or the other, works in such a way that he manifests himself to us in trouble. So don't dread the trouble. Accept it. It's part of God's providence. And rest assured that in one way or the other, He's going to make his presence known to you. He's going to make himself real to you in the trouble. So then in verses 2 and 3, 
The psalmist makes another bold statement which logically follows the statement that he made in verse 1. And here's what he says in verses 2 and 3. Therefore, since, since God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble, since that's true, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Think about that. Selah. Here's what he's saying. He's saying we will not fear even when the trouble that we're facing is so severe that it threatens the very things we tend to depend on naturally for stability. Right? Even if the world itself falls into chaos, we don't have to fear because God is our refuge. He is our strength. He is a very present help in times of trouble. Folks, do you realize this morning that God does not withdraw himself when we're in trouble? If anything, he draws closer to us when we're in trouble because he's a very present help in times of trouble. So the logical outcome of having God as our refuge and our strength and a very present help in time of trouble, the logical outcome to that is, since that's true, I don't have to fear anything. I need not fear. I need not fear. Let me ask you a question. What are some kinds of trouble that when you think about them, they tend to cause you to fear? In other words, almost your automatic response to considering that kind of trouble would threaten to bring fear to your heart. Therefore, he says, though the earth gives way. What about this? Does this have a tendency to make fear come into your heart? Though inflation gets so bad that the economy crashes. Do you ever think about that? Come on, I'll be honest. Am I... Do you ever watch the news and you ever look at the, the financial news and you think, man, inflation is going to get so bad that the economy is going to crash. Does that ever tend to make you fear? Though the doctor says it's incurable and terminal, sometimes I have this trouble that comes. I get this troubled thought in my mind. What? What if some, some kind of new technology comes out that makes what I do totally unnecessary and I lose all of my clients and I lose my business? 
What am I going to do? I tell you what I'm going to do by God's grace. I'm going to trust God because God is my refuge. He's my power. He's my strength. And in that trouble, if it does come, he will be a very present help. You know, in my 60 years on this earth, Holly and I have been married be 41 years, August the 8th. We've been married just about three times longer than we've been alive. Here's what I've noticed. I've noticed trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble. I don't have time, and you wouldn't stay to listen, if I begin to recite to you all the times of trouble that we have faced in 38 years of ministry and 41 years of marriage. And you, but can I tell you something? God has never forsaken us or failed us. One way or the other, he's been right there to help us. So since that's true, we have nothing to fear. Regardless of the trouble we might face, we need not fear, because in that trouble, and yes, even through that trouble, God is going to manifest his glorious presence to us in his help of us. And I just want to remind you this morning from this psalm that God is greater than the roaring, foaming waters. The picture here is the ocean just roaring. We get a picture of that in the New Testament. Matthew 8, 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea that's roaring, foaming water, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Now, I think it's interesting to see he was there, but it, but it seemed like he was asleep and because he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are you fearful, ye of little faith? Then he arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. He was a very present help in their time of trouble. But here's what I want you to see. Verse 27 but when the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? In that storm, in that foaming, crashing sea, that, that great chaos, Jesus was able to manifest his glory to them in a way they had not yet seen it. 
See, they knew he could touch deaf ears and make them hear. They knew he could touch blind eyes and make them see. They knew that he could raise up crippled people, and that they knew he could do all that, but they did not realize that he had power over the elements. And because they were in that situation, they got to see an aspect of his glory that they'd never seen before. You know what? God may allow you to go. And by the way, they were in that boat at his direction. God may allow you to go through some trouble that you'll see his glory in such a way that you've never seen it before. And can I tell you something? When it's all said and done, it'll be worth it. Amen? It'll be worth it. And then verse 3 ends with Selah. Selah. That's a musical term for rest. But I think the psalmist interjects it here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Stop and think about what I've just said. Because God is my refuge and my strength, a very present help in trouble, I don't have to fear anything. Stop and think about that. Stop and think about that. Well, in verse 4, the imagery changes from a raging, foamy sea to a pleasant, flowing river, bringing us to the second stanza of the psalm. So here's the second stanza. Because God is with us, we can enjoy gladness and stability, verses 4 through 7. So look at this change of imagery in verse 4. There is a river. Not a foaming sea, not a foaming, raging sea, but there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High God. Now, when he says, or the Most High, when he says the city of God, the habitation of the Most High, what's he talking about there? He's talking about Jerusalem. And I don't have time to go through all the passages that show this, but Jerusalem in the Old Testament is called over and over the city of God. And what was in Jerusalem? It was the temple of God, the holy habitation of the Most High God. And what does he say there? He says there's a river whose streams make glad Jerusalem and who uh, uh, makes, makes glad the holy habitation of the Most High. You know, often when a city was under siege by an enemy, the first thing that the enemy would do is cut off the supply of water in those days. And the psalmist was saying that there was a river that's within Jerusalem that provided refreshment and sustenance. The problem is, there is no river that flows through Jerusalem. By the way, I was studying this, and they have discovered a great underground river now that flows under the city of Jerusalem. But I don't think that's what the psalmist was talking about. What was he talking about? If there's no actual river that flows through the city of Jerusalem, what is this river that he's talking about? This river that makes the, the city of God glad. What is the river? Well, I want you to notice that it flows in multiple streams. 
It's plural. And it makes the city of God, the habitation of God, glad. And here's what I think it is. I think it is a metaphor for the manifested presence of God. The river is a symbol of the manifested presence of God. What he's saying is God has manifested himself. God is manifesting himself to the city, to the temple, and therefore the city is glad. I think there are some passages in the New Testament that bear this out. For example, when Jesus was having a conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, do you remember that? Remember that conversation? Here's what he says to her. He says in verse 10 of chapter 4, he said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would, ask, would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whosoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become unto him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. By the way, if you have eternal life, who is the only being in the universe that has eternal life? God. If you have eternal life, you have God. The river is the presence of God. You're not convinced yet, are you? I can tell. Listen to this passage. John 7, 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what was that? Now this he said about the Spirit. What is the Spirit? It's God. It's the manifested presence of God. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Folks, I want to suggest to you this river that makes the city of God glad, that makes the habitation of God glad, is the manifested presence of God in the form of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So now the question is, where's the temple now? Where is the temple of God now? Where is the habitation of God now? 1 Corinthians 3.16, Know you not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, we who are believers in Jesus Christ. And, and there's an aspect of that that's true about us as individuals, and then I think there's a little different aspect of that that's true about us as the church collectively. The church is the habitation of God. What Paul wrote? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own. And so, how did God manifest his presence 
to the city and make her glad. We see that in verses 5 and 6. God is in the midst of her, and here's where I get the stability and the steadfastness. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Oh, by the way, God is in the midst of her. Isn't that the presence of God? God will help her when morning dawns, and how will he help her? The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. He will help her by defeating and destroying her enemies. And in so doing, manifest the reality of his presence with her. And then he says in verse 7, and he repeats this again in verse 11. Notice how God is referred to in the first part of chapter 46, verse 7. The Lord of hosts. Do you know what that is? That's God's military name. That's God's warring name. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, Happy are they who know from their own experience that there is such a river of God, the streams whereof in their various influences, for they are many, shall make glad the city of God by assuring the citizens that Zion's Lord will unfailingly supply all their needs. And then we're back to the word Selah again. And the end of the second stanza. Stop and think about this. Rest in this truth. Rest in this truth. This brings us to the last stanza of the song. Verses 8 through 11. And the title of this stanza is Because God is with us. There's two things this stanza tells us we should do. We should behold his works. And we should be still. The first thing the psalmist says to do, the second thing God himself says to do. In verse 8, the psalmist issues this invitation. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. Now this is kind of strange. Because I want you to notice that the works here that we're invited to behold are his works of destruction. This word desolation means a thing of horrors. It means devastations. It means to be laid waste. Come and see the amazing, glorious works of God in how he has destroyed How he has caused devastation and laid waste. There are people who would say, well, that's not how my God operates. God builds up. God creates. God makes things better. Well, the God of the Bible destroys. And by the way, when God, when we see him creating, it's a display of his glory. 
But when we see him destroying, it's a display of his glory. One is just as glorious as the other. Huh? Come behold his works. Works of destruction. He expands on this thought in verse 9. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. Now let's just stop there for a minute. You say, well, that's a good thing. How does he do it? He does it by destroying. <laughs> he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. How does he make the wars cease? By destroying the enemies who are causing the wars. And he gets glory for himself. He makes wars cease by destroying the weapons and the equipments of the enemies of his people. And in so doing, he manifests his presence to his people and he brings glory to himself among the nations of the world. By the way, if you read the book of Exodus, this theme is throughout the entire book of Exodus. Every time he sent a plague, he was doing it to bring glory to himself, to destroy Egypt, and to deliver his people. You say, is that how the God of the Bible works? That's how the God... By the way, he's the God of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. He's God. He never changes. And he brings glory to himself. Exodus 14, 24 and 25. And in the morning watch... The Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and he threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. You know what he was doing there? He was showing his people that he was with him and he was bringing glory to himself by the destruction of the chariots of the army. And by the way, he let the sea come and drown them. That is a expression of his presence. It is glory. That's our God. In verse 10, we're instructed by God himself as to how we should respond to the truth of this psalm. Here's what he says in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God demonstrated his presence with his people by destroying their enemies. And in so doing, he was exalted. His glory is seen on the earth. When we read in Scripture how that God manifested himself to his people when he showed himself to be with them by defeating their enemies, it should cause us to become quietly reverent before God. 
This is our God. At the same time that it produces joy and comfort, it should produce in our hearts fear of our God. He's not to be trifled with. Yes, he's gracious. Yes, he's merciful. But he's also the Lord of hosts, the God who doesn't just create, but the God who destroys. It should remind us that our God is a warrior. And there's coming a time when all idolatry will be destroyed. And God will show himself glorious to all the nations of the earth. And finally, the psalmist closes this song by restating its theme in verse 11. Look at it with me again. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, our protection. While Holly comes to the piano, I want us to consider those four questions of application that I put in the bulletin. What are some of the things that you tend to take refuge in besides God? Number two, what anticipated circumstances tend to bring you fear? And how can you trust God in the light of these circumstances? What promises of God apply? And number three, in what troubles and times past has God manifested himself to you? Oh, I would encourage you on purpose to think about that. It's going to just make you glad and give you courage when you see how God's already worked. And number four, what works of the Lord tend to cause you to become quietly reverent before him? This psalm has often been referred to Luther's psalm. It has been said that he often read this aloud with his associates. And I believe this is the basis for his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In just a few moments, we're going to sing that together. But before we do, I would ask that we bow our heads and be still and contemplate these questions for just a few moments. As God has spoken to you through his word, speak back to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you this morning for Psalm 46. We thank you for how it reveals your character. It reveals your glory. It, in, it reveals the ways that you work. I pray through these four questions and maybe some that I've not even thought about. You would help us 
to apply what we've heard this morning to our hearts. Thank you that this psalm has been a refuge, a, a place of strength and encouragement throughout the ages. Thank you for those who've gone before us, who've experienced your truth and shared it with us in their words. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.